Would you open God's precious holy word, 1 Kings 4. These, these narratives in Kings and Chronicles as well, from, from our viewpoint, give us lessons in life and teach, teach us both from the successes and failures of those who rise to leadership. Solomon was a, a great king. Of this there is no doubt. He had a good start and he was left with a strong nation in the sense that enemies did not challenge Solomon's kingdom. And Solomon, unlike David, was very diplomatic. So we can take the stories, the accounts of the kings that were given here in First and Second Kings and in Chronicles as well, and even compare the flow of events um, and how leadership was successful or not successful and even compare those things to history. Regarding the sons of David, they have a special place because this is a theocracy. Now, Solomon's son, because of Solomon's sin, sins, the kingdom is torn in half after Solomon dies. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will assume the throne. He's not nearly as bright as Solomon. And the 10 kingdoms, the 10 northern kingdoms pull away and form the northern kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam and the sons of David following are left with the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom had a son of David on the throne. It had the temple. Of course, there was the high priest, the priesthood and so forth. The northern kingdom had, uh, it was started out and was supposed to be a theocracy, but it became mingled with uh, other religions in the world, which began to affect the northern kingdom fairly quickly as kingdoms would go in those days. And they did not have a son of David on the throne. They were just men who were filled with themselves, um, and they were conspiratorial, aggressive, and most of them did not do that which was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And finally they collapsed as a nation to the 
Assyrians. But here in the time of Solomon, historians, Israelite historians, reference this era as the golden age of Israel for, we're going to see for what obvious reasons. And the greatness of Solomon has, it goes unchallenged, uh, even among secular historians, when, when things are heard and discovered and so forth outside of the Bible. How is it important to us? Well, Solomon, the sons of David, carry the promise of the Christ. Israel has certain covenant promises from God, along with warnings that those, those promises can be off the table if Israel chases after other gods and, and cults. So there are lessons in leadership in uh, Solomon. We've already seen some. But then there's this measure of greatness because in so many ways, Solomon gets this start, such a great start, that the gift of Elohim in the life of Solomon sees a man come to the throne who just makes all the right decisions as a leader, not personally. He makes terrible decisions. We'll see later on in his personal life. And those are the ones that bring him under and uh, will take him down. Another thing we'll notice is that uh, the greatness and goodness of David is so far reaching that it goes past the 40 years that Solomon reigned, even into the early years of Rehoboam. God said to Solomon when he judged Solomon that he would not, he would not rend the kingdom until after Solomon was dead. And he did that for the sake of Solomon's father, David. So the, if the, the effect of David, now, why does that matter? Well, as long as there was stability in the administrative part of the kingdom, as long as the kingdom was solid and it took, a, it took a, 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 the leadership of a king and the, and the prowess of a king to keep the nation stable. Now, this is just the way it is on planet Earth. When leadership, when national leadership becomes unstable or when it's weak, it creates a vacuum. And there are always self-proclaimed leaders who are more than willing to do what it takes to fill that vacuum. And so there's a rise and fall of nations and kingdoms throughout the history of the times of the Gentiles and the behavior, the, the code, the, the problems that are magnified in the times of the Gentiles are seen 
in some ways in the, in the times of the kings and especially here in, in Solomon. So the history of his kingdom is a good solid history. David has left him with everything that he needed. And Solomon, his name even means, it refers to peace. He's a man of peace. And so he won't have to spend his time, his life, the treasury of his nation going to war. He can do it with other things. A strong, stable nation with strong, secure leadership is a blessing to the people. And we're going to see in this passage tonight that this, this resulted in a prosperous population. It made them happy. They were happy people. When that leadership and, and those things are taken away and the leadership that leans to righteousness, of course, and is a leadership that depends on God, when that is taken away, the people begin to suffer. There was, uh, I can't remember who the guy was. He made a statement one time and it stuck with a lot of people. It's been many years ago. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as Jerusalem goes, so goes the rest of Israel. As Solomon goes, so goes Jerusalem. And so goes the rest of Israel, including the population. Now, what we'll be looking at here tonight are the happy days, the really good, the really good times, uh, because, so, but because of Solomon's wisdom and because he leaned on the Lord for everything. So let's just, uh, let's just get right into it. It kind of flows on its own, but I'll make, uh, I'll make a comment here and there. The administrative gifts of the, now we cannot separate this from the fact that God gave Solomon these special gifts of wisdom and understanding and leadership. And we'll see what that means in the life of Solomon, which translates itself into the life, into the lives of the people as we go through this passage. The king's administrative gifts resulted in strong government. When I say strong government, I mean stable government that is a blessing to the people. Now you could, it's, it's, it's not like a despot is on the throne where the people are enslaved. Not that kind of government. This is what I mean by a strong government is they are stable. And to begin with, their direction and focus are, are proper and they are in the proper direction. And we'll see here how that works. But the bottom line is that Solomon had been granted his prayer to have discernment and understanding and wisdom. So you have wisdom and you have understanding. Understanding means that you know things. You, you have knowledge Wisdom means that you need to, you know how to apply the knowledge and discernment means that you apply the knowledge in a proper way. 
with, with, with regard to discernment. Uh, already, we have already seen it with regard to the two women who claimed the same uh, baby and his wisdom then just uh, the, the, the story of his wisdom went all over, the, all over the world in that part of the world in that day. King Solomon was king over all Israel. And the point is made that uh, it first started with Saul and then David really strengthened Israel as a kingdom. And now it's been passed down to Solomon and Solomon is king over all Israel. That is, this is a more important statement than you may think because the 12 tribes didn't always like each other. It's like, it's like having 12 children at home and not everybody wants the same supper or wants to go to the same place for vacation or four of them want the same toy at the same time. I mean, it's, you know, that's the way the 12 tribes were. They, they were jealous of one another. They watched one another. They were not eager to get along with one another. This is a great accomplishment for David to have brought them together in such a strong kingdom. And then it's a further great accomplishment that King Solomon seamlessly transitioned into uh, his reign as king and really didn't have to deal with any of these divisive issues. So every, everybody was happy. He, to think that the 12 tribes are happy is really a big deal. So here's what Solomon does. He divides his kingdom into 12 districts. And each district will have an official who is the supreme leader of that particular district. And here there, here's, the, here's the account of how that happened. And these were the princes or the officials whom he had. Azariahu, the son of Zadok the priest. Elehorif and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha. They were scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. All right. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to a church that was indecent and disorderly, let everything be done decently and in order. That was an apostolic command of the church. The church should be orderly and it should be decent. We'll go all the way back then to the time of Solomon. And of course, this is a natural trait of leadership, that things are organized and they can move, move smoothly. I, when I was in the, when I was many years ago and I was working on the MBA, one of the professors said, or an organization is like a digestive system. If everything's working, you don't know it's there. That's a good organization. Things are just moving smoothly. But if something goes wrong, you know you, know you have a problem. And of course, the, the admonition to those in that MBA course was the importance of organization 
and leadership and an understanding of who played what role and how, how this organization was, was built in its, uh, if you will, hierarchy. Now, the difference between me and Harry Truman is this. Harry Truman said, and he had it on his desk, the buck stops here. What I say is the buck had better not get this far, right? <laughs> you want good, capable people taking care of everything else. Otherwise, if it gets all the way to the king, it won't be a pleasant thing for somebody. Well, this is what we see here. The organization, the importance of the organization, and it's listed. So it's a lesson in life, the importance of good organization, people that the king can trust. He has these scribes and the recorder. It was their, it was their jobs to make sure that the king was well informed of everything that was going on in the kingdom. And whenever the king made a decree or a law, it was written down. It was inscribed in their book of laws. Now, can a, can a king, in Solomon's case, he reigned for 40 years. He's, he's his 36th year in his reign. And he issued a decree in the second year of his reign. And now a similar situation arises. And here's, here's the question. Can that Solomon, for all of the decrees that he had made in his, in his reign as king, could he possibly remember something that was 34 years ago or whatever? Of course not. This is the importance of, of these people right here. And a lot of strife can be avoided if Solomon can just keep apprised of what laws have been made, what decrees have been issued, and good information of what's going on everywhere in his kingdom. Verse 4, But Nahu the son of Jehoiada was over the army, over the host, over the army. And Zedok and Abiatar were the priests. Now he had exiled, Solomon had exiled Abiatar. And I have it in red there to remind us that uh, while he could exile him and he could, he could change around certain responsibilities, there were checks and balances in Israel. You had prophets, you had priests, and you had the king. Um, and the king could be kept in check. You remember Nathan, 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 the, Nathan the prophet came to correct the mighty King David because he was a prophet of God. And David, of course, acquiesced to the word of the prophet. The priesthood could, could remind a king of what the law states, what the law, what the Torah requires. But he could, he could change, while exiling Abiyatah, he could, he could change the responsibilities of uh, the priests. So it's not to confuse us that he's still listed here. And Azariahu, the son of Natan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Natan, was principal officer, and he was the king's friend. 
me stop here just a second. As we saw in the life of David, so we see in the life of Solomon and every king and every leader and every administration, every time, every, whenever someone is put into position of leadership and, and decisions have to be made that, and decisions always affect people. And someone who makes decisions wants to make sure that he makes well-informed decisions, that his decisions are proper decisions, and they have the least negative effect possible. So he has to surround himself with people he would trust. It turns out that in David's case, quite a few of the people that he surrounded himself with that he trusted were not worthy of his trust and they betrayed him and it created him all kinds of problems, even to the point of nearly losing the kingdom over the rebellion that one of his sons and then another of his sons brought against King David. So you have to be sure that you're surrounded with people you trust. I pastored a church some years ago, large church, had, had quite a few ministry staff members. <laughs> it was the policy. It was the policy within that church whenever a staff member, and it was the pastor, the church did not vote to call a staff member in that church, that pastor hired his own staff. And the policy was that the staff member would on his first day would present to the pastor an undated signed resignation. And the pastor could date it anytime he felt like he needed to. And that was that. Well, you know, leadership requires trustworthy people. A man cannot do everything all at once and be in every place at, at, at one time. He has to have people upon him, whom he would depend. Thus is the case here. Now, I said that because if you look up here, Zabud the son of Natan. Now, now this is not Natan the, the prophet. This is, uh, this Natan was a full brother of Solomon. Natan was also a son of Bathsheba. So here, Zabud is his nephew, and it's his friend. Hey, when you're the richest man in the world, what do you do with your friend? I don't know. Go fishing? I don't know. In this case, be the boss of all the other ones and report only to the king. He was the king's friend. Ahisha was over the household and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the levy or the labor force. Now, there was a, and I've, I've studied the word, it's, uh, it's an interesting, there, there are many takes, but apparently, apparently there were people who, who, who could have gone to prison or did something wrong or whatever, 
and needed to work their way back into the good graces of whoever. There were a lot of projects going on when King Solomon was reigning as king. And so these people, it's kind of like the Godfather. You make them an offer they can't refuse. And then what they do pays money and that money is extracted. Well, here's the guy that was over that in verse six, verse seven. Solomon had 12 officers over all of Israel who provided victuals for the king and his household. Now, I have a little insert there that I put in there. The lowest number that I could see historically, those who worked in the household of Solomon, the lowest number was 12,000. The highest number was 36,000. So if you put everything about Solomon together and you consider the public works that he instigated, that he would oversee personally, uh, of course, the building of the temple, but not just that, other projects, and we're going to see this as we go along in this passage tonight, other things that he would become involved with, he would have a lot of people closest to him who were immediately responsible for those projects to be done. These were like public works, projects, public services. Of course, it would be his family, but it would be other people. Say, let's say that somewhere between, let's say, I don't know, 25 or 30,000. So this was the, um, these were the, the helpers of Solomon and they would be well organized as well. Some of them would work um, in, in certain sciences and some of them work um, in, in certain uh, philosophical ways to record things. And Solomon, I think, I have to think here, something like over 22,000 Proverbs that he wrote and there's not that many in the book of Proverbs so a lot of them we don't have. But the ones divinely inspired, of course, are kept and preserved by the Holy Spirit well, all of these things, philosophically, scientifically, historically, all academically, all of these things were working from Solomon. And these would flow out to the blessing of the people because it created areas of work. It created different places where people had certain strengths and they didn't have strengths in other ways, but there was always a place for them. And his household would be busy trying to keep everyone else busy, not just that. No other king in the world con controlled the trade routes of the world except Solomon. They all had to come through Israel. So there were surcharges and, and there were taxes and there were fees that could be collected as, as people on those trade routes, as nations would send their goods to other nations and go through those trade routes. And they did it because Israel kept them safe. These guys were carrying stuff on their caravans that would be worth a lot of money, but Israel would keep them safe. They had, of course, they had uh, citadels all, all across and they had armies and soldiers and they knew they could travel securely, but not without a cost. There was a cost. Well, all of this came into the coffers of of King Solomon. So much of his household would have to do with that as well. 
And all of these people needed to be fed, clothed, and housed. Thus, all of the districts of Israel provided food for the king and his household. And each man, okay, he had it developed, he had it uh, divided into 12 districts. And each man, each district had to make provision for a month in the year. So if it's one of these officers, his district would provide everything needed for the household of the king for that month. And then he would pass on to the next one and so forth. And these are their names. Ben-Hur on Mount Ephraim. This was shortly after he won the chariot race. Uh. (laughs) Well, actually, it's just a general name, Ben-Hur, son of Hur. And several of them are like this. They don't give. And the question is, would be, is this their real name? Or did they have another name? And their father's household was so strong that they were best referred to in the, in the record of the kings as just the son of Hur in this, in this case. On Mount Ephraim, Bendeker of Machaz, and in Sha'albim, and in Beshemesh, and Elin Beth Hanan, Ben Chesed in Arubat, to him pertained Soho and all the land of Hefer. Ben Abinadav, all the region of Dor, Abinadav, all the region of Dor, Tapath, the daughter of Solomon, was to him as a wife. So this guy started <laughs> dating Solomon's daughter, and they just sort of solidified his position, right, when they got married. Ba'ana, Ba'ana bin Ahilud, to him pertained Ta'anach and Megiddo and all Beth Shein, which is beside Zerithana, beneath Jezreel, from Beshian to Abel Mechola, as far as beyond Jokmim. Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, to him pertained the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. To him also pertained the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and brazen bars, brass bars. Ahenadav ben Iddo was appointed, now begin using their name, the, the, these guys' names, was appointed to Machanim. Achimaaz was in Naphtali. Also he took Basimeth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Ba'ana ben Hushai was in Asher and in Alot. Jehoshaphat ben Paruach was in Issachar. Shimei ben Ela was in Benjamin. Geba ben Uri was in the country of Gilead, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. Now, let me make a statement here because we'll see something like this. Anything related to that, I think I have it highlighted in blue. I think that's blue. You'll notice that he has an official in Gilead and within that land, within that country, there are two small kingdoms and they're listed here, the Amorites and uh, Bashan. And, 
And he was, and one, and prob- probably best translated, he was the only officer that was over all the officers in the land. Okay. These smaller kingdoms had kings, and we'll see more about this in a minute, but these kings were permitted to continue to reign as king in their land because they would, they would be promised, covenanted, of course, to serve Solomon and the kingdom of Israel. Now, that's, here's why that's important. In my view, the complete land of promise that was originally promised to Abraham, that complete land of promise has never completely been under the control of Israel. Now, some try to make the point, well, now Solomon, he, he ruled here and he not the way it's worded here. He permitted other kingdoms who were vassals of the state of Israel. But at this point, he did not assert himself completely over that. He allowed these other kingdoms to continue. Apparently, at least as I see it in the language here, Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. They were happy. The organization and the administration of Solomon brought prosperity to the people. So the people felt like singing and dancing. They would go to the, the movies. They would, they would, they would go out to the restaurants and all this kind of stuff. They were happy, prosperous, secure under the leadership of Solomon. And the underscore here is it, well, everything that goes before it rests. And this is the truth that results on how Solomon had organized and had the right guys in the right places overseeing the administration of the kingdom. So both Judah and Israel, their population really grew in the time of this prosperity. People could afford a lot of kids. They had a lot of kids. Kids were happy. Mom and daddy was happy. Cousins were happy. Everybody would take a vacation. And if you went, <laughs> if you went over to Issachar from Naphtali, you'd be greeted by happy people. They weren't at war. They didn't hate each other because of the prosperity and peace that had come in via Elohim through the person of his servant, Solomon, the king. Now, at verse 20 in chapter 4, the Hebrew Bible changes to chapter 5 and verse 1, but it's the same stuff. So don't let this confuse you. It just goes on to the next, it goes on to the next verse, but mine will read a little different here than yours. There's this record now of the remarkable power and wealth of King Solomon. So let's consider it. Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms, again in blue. There wasn't just one kingdom. There were several kingdoms. And it pleased Solomon and apparently worked out better for him to let friendly kings 
continue their leadership in smaller vassal states, smaller kingdoms, smaller than Israel. So again, we have this statement because the land is outlined here, but there's more than one kingdom. And I think that's an important thing to think about because the Lord Christ, you know, we're told in the Bible to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and King Messiah will rule absolutely in the land of promise. And then all other, other kingdoms are, will be subservient to that great kingdom. Okay, with all that said, he reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, and they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now that is a, a type of what happens in the millennial kingdom. Kings and nations will bring their treasures and their gifts at their appointed times during that thousand years. This is taught in um, Isaiah. And then it carries on even into the new heaven and new earth. They bring this in abeyance to the great king of kings. So here is just a type of that. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. He never lost control of all of that vast region of the world as the king of Israel. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, 60 measures of meal, 10 fat, and this is one day, 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pastures, 100 sheep besides hearts, deer, fallow deer, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the inhabitants on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza, over all the kings, and I've underlined it and highlighted it in blue again, there were other kings, smaller vassal states, on this side of the river. And he had peace on all sides around. Now that was a lot of goods per day. That was, that was a lot of stuff. So you could see the great responsibility that each officer had one month out of the year to provide that much stuff to the household of Solomon. Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. There, was, there were property rights. People owned their land. They worked the land. The land was prosperous in the blessing of Yahweh to his people from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Prosperity, unknown, except in those days, all the days of Solomon. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And these officers provided victuals for King Solomon and for all that came unto King Solomon's table, every man in his month, and they lacked nothing. So the production of the land and the people, I mean, it was, it was immense. It was enormous. People just kept producing goods and services. And it made the people wealthy. It made the nation wealthy. And of course, Solomon was wealthy. 
And the barley and the straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where he would be there, every man according to his charge. And Elohim gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceedingly much and largeness of his heart as the sand that is on the seashore. Now let me explain this. First of all, the only reason the people were prosperous is because of Elohim. It's because of God. It's, Solomon would not have been anything without God. God gave to him his wisdom, gave to him his understanding, but also gave him a largeness of heart as the sand that is on the seashore. That is sort of like a Hebraistic reference to a man who thirsts for knowledge. He sees trees. He wants to study the trees and learn everything he can know about trees. Plants, gardens, animals, stars in the heaven. Whatever he saw, he studied. It sort of said that. It sort of talks like that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, my heart wasn't held, withheld from anything. Richest man in the world spends his time. He has a thirst for knowledge. And with, and with the wisdom and understanding and discernment that God had granted to him, he could just absorb it like all the time. A tremendously intelligent man because of Elohim. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the children of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than all men, than Eton de Ezrahite, Himon, and Chalchal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the nations round about. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. There was a statement in a another historical writing that spoke of the thousands and thousands. In the Bible, only 3,000 3, are mentioned. A historian, I don't count that, of course, as divinely inspired, but he's the one who mentioned more than 20,000 Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. That's like Psalms. And if you read the Psalms, there are a few Psalms that are credited to Solomon. He wrote them. And he spoke of trees. He would learn such that he could teach. From the cedar tree that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of the beasts and of the fowl and of the creeping things and of the fishes. What this means is he learned everything he could. He could, he could nobody knew more about these things than Solomon did. He was the chief academic person in the world in his day. And they came of all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. I think that ends chapter four in the English translation. So we'll, we'll stop uh, right there. Solomon, an impressive fellow. We'll have our deacon prayer time.